What did you think of the Gale aspect of the story? Yeah, I, I I was very disturbed of her going back into deep freeze just after she thawed out. I mean, she's going to wake up with freezer burn <laughs> next time. <laughs> Welcome to season two of Star's End, a podcast dedicated to Foundation, Isaac Asimov's classic science fiction series, both the books and the TV series currently streaming on Apple TV+. In season one, we read through the three books of Asimov's original Foundation series with an enthusiastic but critical eye. Now we've turned that eye to our screens to watch and discuss the show. I'm John, and I'll be one of the voices guiding you through this story of the fall and rise of galactic empires. I'm Dan. We're Foundation fans who love the novels, but aren't afraid to critique them. We're hoping to love Apple's new series, and aren't afraid that it's an adaptation that changes some things. But if we see something that rubs us the wrong way, we'll let you know. My name is Joseph. You joined us on our nostalgic journey through this 80-year-old classic. Now join us on a new adventure as we see whether galactic civilization and this new interpretation of Asimov's story will evolve or die. This week on Star's End, we have episode eight of the Apple Plus TV show. And we also have a special guest, Rich Greenberg, Hollywood screenwriter, a man with a nasty reputation as a cruel dude. That's for Ethan. Uh, you, you probably know him from his fine work on Maniac Cop 2 and his Emmy Award winning TV series, The Beauty Inside. And also 2018's movie Zoe, which was directed by Drake Doremus. It had such stars as Ewan McGregor, Leah Seydoux, Theo James, Rashida Jones, Christina Aguilera, and Miranda Otto. And Rich is going to talk to us this week about some of the challenges and opportunities of trying to adapt a TV series, uh, a book into a TV series, something like Foundation in particular. And, uh, and maybe we'll talk about, uh, Rich, what you think about the kind of job that, uh, that David Goyer is doing. <laughs> we'll make sure that we spell your name for him so that if he ever doesn't want to hire you, we'll, uh, he'll, he'll know exactly who not to hire. <laughs> and, and normally, I don't give long introductions to guests. So what I'd, I'd like to do is just throw it over to you to, to introduce yourself to us a little bit. Um, well, you've done a better job than I could have already. The, the Maniac 2... Maniac Cop 2 story is true. That was the first production assistant job I worked on back in the late 80s, sequel to the smash hit Maniac Cop and prequel to the anticip highly anticipated Maniac Cop 3. After that, I worked as an assistant director uh, in New York and gradually worked my way up the food chain until I uh, started writing and transitioned over to screenwriting. All right. And I should mention that I've known Rich, you and I have known each other for, it's, it's got to be about 40 it's years. It's got to be about 40 years since we were playing Avalon Hill and Jonathan Friedman's basement. Yes. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, well, Rich, I think we should probably just get right into, uh, into kind of talking about how science fiction makes it to the screen and, and how an adaptation such as this works. I mean, one of the things that we've talked about a lot on, on this podcast is the difficulty taking something like uh, 
Foundation, which was written in the 1940s by a guy who was, let's just say, much more interested in dialogue than in action. And then trying to translate that into something that people want to watch on TV. So what do you what do you think of uh, of the show and, and how it relates to the book? Well, I mean, I like the show. There are flaws in it for sure, but I think one of the terrific things about the science fiction genre is you can make up your own rules to any world. You know, the physical rules don't apply. So you can invent whatever your imagination can come up with. And I think Foundation, I'm sure you've talked about this before, but Foundation features one of the one of the great mind-bending concepts that something as, as precise and pure as mathematics can predict something as squishy and mystical as the future. And the marriage of those two concepts is fantastic. And I think it's one of the, one of the great appeals to the book. And it's certainly uh, one of the great appeals of the series, although it gets, it gets muddled a little bit more in the series, I think, than in the book. Yeah, that's definitely a topic of conversation that we've had. I mean, I think when we were looking at it before the show came out and all we had were yeah. a couple of trailers and, and we sort of said, what do we need to see to make this, to make this a success? We kind of said psychohistory has got yeah. to be central to the story. I mean, that's the one thing that you, you really want to take out of the books and you want to make a central topic. And, and we debate back and forth whether they have really done that and and you know whether somebody coming to this story without having read the books would really get would really get that or not and uh, i think for us the jury's really still out it feels in screenwriting there's something called an inciting incident and that's something that happens mid early to midway through the first act that kind of launches the action and it feels more like an inciting incident in the series it kind of organizes the action in the first act and incites a lot of action people react to that knowledge and do things based on this prediction, but it doesn't really affect, you know, the action going forward after that. So it's this kind of umbrella, it's kind of in the background and it motivates things, but in kind of a remote way, not an immediate way. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. And I, and I, I think we, we kind of sense that as well, that it's, it's a, it's a topic, but whether it's really central or not, we don't really know. And does it really have to be? Clearly, they've made a lot of trade-offs in, sure. in translating this thing to the screen. I mean, one of the things David Goyer said was an awful lot of stuff in the book happens off screen. The Empire falls. Selden dies off screen. off screen. And well, yeah, I mean, he's, it's, it's, his death is really not exactly. I mean, there's, there's a million things that happen off screen. And David Goyer, the showrunner, basically said, well, you, you can't do that on TV. You know, you've got to you've got to show those things. Well, the aphorism everybody says in Hollywood is show, don't tell. He's tell. Well, it's not true for books necessarily. Well, somewhat true for books, but he managed to get away with it. Right. But but he has a lot of scenes which are just people sitting in rooms talking to each other. He loves courtroom scene. There's always a courtroom scene. Although I thought they you know, the funny, the courtroom scene that they did do early in the series yeah. uh, with Alexander Siddig as the uh, as the prosecutor. I thought that actually went pretty well. I did too. I did too, because that introduces the inciting incident. There's real stakes to what's going on. Um, so it's not, it's not really so much about the dialogue and the language. It's the dynamics of what's has the power dynamics of what's happening. If that makes sense. No, it does make sense. Well, let me ask you this. And I, I you guys, you know, Dan and, and Joseph, please, please jump in with, with any questions you have. I don't want to, uh, 
overwhelm you guys, but um, what what do you think of the new things that they've done? Well, you know, what do you me, think they've done I mean, well? If you want, if you want to back up a little bit, because I feel like almost there's a context to this, and that's there's there's a there's a difference between getting stuff made that's based on IP. IP is intellectual property. That's you know a book or a movie. There's right. a difference in the industry of getting stuff made with IP behind it, as opposed to getting something that's just on spec, which means a writer just creates something and tries to sell it. And that may be relevant to this discussion because when there's, it's, it's next to impossible to get something made in Hollywood. It's like trying to get to Venus, right? Everything's got to go right. You got to have your team around you. If you make a mistake, you, you're lost in space and you may not even know where you are. If you have intellectual property behind you, it's still really hard, but that's like trying to get to the top of Everest. You know, you still might die, you still might not make it, but people have done it. So when you have something like the foundation behind you, the barriers to getting it made are, they're different. They're still high ones, but they're much lower. You know, the Asimov estate if John Blumenfeld goes to the Isaac Asimov estate and says, I love foundation, I want to get it made, they're going to, they're going to say, well, even if you could afford us, we really need to know how you're going to interpret it. What are you going to do? What's your take? Obviously, you can't film every word of this. So there has to be some creative interpretation of this book series to adapt it to the screen. And probably, even if John Blumenfeld has a genius idea, they're never going to sell it to him. Apple comes in and says, hey, Isaac Asimov estate, we really like this, we want to buy it. They might say, well, what are you going to do with it, Apple? We want, you know, Isaac Asimov was very concerned. This was his, his uh, you know, he's known for this. We want to be careful with it. And Apple probably says, well, think of the highest number you can and we'll double it and that's what we'll pay you. And Apple TV says, and the Asimov guys say, okay, you can, you can have it. Once that happens, once Apple has it, they probably have some ideas of who they want to go to. They might have David Goyer was, was he may have spearheaded it. Apple TV may have had him and another few guys in mind. But at some point along the line, somebody, and it was probably David Goyer and his team, will have to convince some owner, whether it's the Asimov people or the producers at Apple TV, of how they're going to do this, how they're going to take this sprawling, you know, it spans thousands of years and all across the galaxy, how are you going to tell this story that, as you said, it's a lot of, a lot of it is two people talking in a room, which doesn't, doesn't sell on the screen. And if you've heard David Goyer speak at all, that sounds like you have, he said, well, the key to this is really going to be the emotion in the characters. We have to find, find those emotional moments to find the characters in a way that's compelling um, and go from there. In fairness, in no disrespect to David Goyer, that's what everybody says about everything. That's the rule. Film, uh, you know, the producer I work with <clears throat> says all the time when people see movies, they, they don't want to think, they want to feel. And that's not to say that you don't want to watch things that are thought provoking, but we become emotional agents rather than analytical agents when we're, when we're in a movie theater or watching TV. So the question you're asking really, I think, is how, what have they done to make people feel? How did they do it? And I guess if you look at it, you can start with they've, how they've changed the characters. And I think they made some pretty smart moves. I think David Goyer is a pretty smart guy. Changing Gal Dornick to a woman from a man who opens up all these possibilities. I, I would guess you've discussed it already in some of your earlier podcasts, but 
I think it was smart to make her young and this kind of prodigy from a planet that doesn't look like it produces prodigy mathematicians. It looks like it produces, you know, knuckle dragging guys and bearskins. <laughs> yeah. So she's immediately kind of an underdog. She's more interesting than the old Gail Dornick, who was a guy who I don't forget what it was. He published in paper or something. He wrote a biography of Selden, but we see very little of That's him right. after the initial That's right. framing story that, that was written to put the short stories together. Yeah, so she obviously has a lot more agency. You also get to see her swimming in a two-piece bathing suit, which tells you the creators are not idiots. And, you know, had the question they've asked at every turn is, how do we get more emotion out of this book, how, this dry book, these scenes with people talking? How do we do it? Well, let's make Gail Darnick a woman. Let's give her a love interest. And let's make her in conflict with Harry Selden, not the, some adoring acolyte. And I think those are pretty smart decisions. I think, I think largely the changes they've made have been really successful. And I would guess there are purists who love the book that are going to be upset by that, but I wouldn't count myself among them. So let me follow up on the purists. I mean, the, there, there are certainly, there's a lot of people who online who are fans of the book, who have trashed uh, the series. Um, I think the three of us all along have known and accepted that there would have to be huge changes to put this on the screen. Sometimes going along watching, I, I'm, I'm sort of wondering why this scale of changes, even when I like what is happening in front of me as a TV show, I, I've kind of wondered, you know, could they have put more action or more character development in this in a way that doesn't directly contradict the story? And I've just even wondered if, you know, trying to keep as much fidelity as possible to the original novel was 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 a was a topic in the writers' room. I honestly don't know from watching this. So I was wondering if you could speak to like how how much do writers when they're doing an adaptation worry about people who like the books and like doing that kind of fan service or keeping things even if things have to be changed, keeping it keeping the changes. Lesson sure. Well, as you can imagine, there's no simple answer to that. That ranges from if you're J.K. Rowling, you can't change anything, you know, and, and that's just, that's the rule. And she wrote her, her piece and it's her baby and nothing's going to change. If you're Stephen King, you sell your material for a dollar to anybody who wants it, but you have, to, but he approves it. So he doesn't say it, that it has to be absolute fidelity to the work. It could be anything you want to make it. I'm sure the writers generally, if there's a prime directive to screenwriting in a writer's room, it's what David Goyer said. It's how do you make your audience feel something? And if you can make them feel something by staying within the confines of the book, what's on the page, I think they do it. But this is a really, really tough adaptation. And... I don't think there's a way to make this foundation a successful TV show and have really uh, high fidelity, to coin a phrase, <laughs> to the book. I don't think it's possible. It's to the, the book. There's big parts of that book that are kind of boring. I think there are pieces of it that have, yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, it reminds me, parts of it remind me of the Star Wars prequels. There's this stuff about trade, not trade federations, but who has nuclear power and what metals are mineable. You know, you're, my eyelids get heavy reading that stuff. I don't, you know, you want to, 
you want to read about Dale Dornick hooking up with Harry Seldon's adopted son. Um, so I think, I think Not in the book, writers, anyway. No, I know, <laughs> I know. Would have been quite the scandal in 1942. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so I think writers are always mindful of it. You always want, you don't want to deviate from the book if you don't have to, but I think they had to. <laughs> it feels like there are times when he's done things that are kind of very obviously service to the people who've read the books. You know, there are incidents where you can go, okay, I see that was from the book, like finding the old Imperial battleship in between the, in the TV yeah. shows called the Invictus is very reminiscent of something that happened in the books where they find the Anacreonians find an old Imperial battleship and they get the foundation to fix it up for them. Now it's handled a little bit differently here, but it really felt to me like that was absolutely kind of a, a, a t tossing a bone to the readers of the book. And in this week's episode, which we'll talk about the arrival of the Thespis Navy is really right out of the way that they solved the first crisis in the first book, which was to get the other kingdoms of the local area to gang up on the Anacreonians. And so that, again, that's kind of reminiscent and it felt very much like, like the people, you know, the producers were saying, see, see, we really are following, we really are following the book, even if we're not doing it exactly the way it was in the book. Do, do you think that, you know, it's possible that that could be a conscious decision where they want to really say, okay, we, we're going to throw you some bones, you, you purists. I don't think the process works that way. I don't think they say we need some stuff to throw to the purists. And they, I think they're just trying to tell the best story they can. And they're working with source material that has, you know, it's got a silhouette, it's got an arc. And it's probably more they're trying to fit as much as they can of what's in the book into their approach. I mean, there, there, who, there could have been, if a thousand writers, if you put a thousand writers in a room and said, what, how are you going to adapt this? They'd come up with a thousand different ways this is the one that these guys came up with. And again, it's, I'm sure there's a balance. I'm sure the, the idea crossed our minds. If we don't, if we, if we leave the source material behind, we are going to piss people off. And then there's going to be, you know, the Twitterverse is going to skewer us and no one's going to watch it. And we'll be the guys that ruined Isaac Asimov's, you know, treatise. So I'm sure they're, they're, they're aware that there has to be a balance, but they're trying to tell the best story they can. And also tell it, different mediums communicate ideas and concepts different ways. And there's things you can then make an impact and land on the screen that won't land in the book. I, if you think about the, what's it called? The vault, the vault is where, so the vault, it's yeah. kind of the same in, you know, the concepts are the same, but they've made it much more cinematic in the series. Like they've added all this intrigue and it's more mysterious and it's visual in a way it's not in the books, at least to me. Because that can upset a purist maybe, but it's it's cool. You go you go for cool. Yeah, I mean, some of the things that they've added, I, I love. I mean, I think the whole the, the clones of the emperors is a very interesting topic. And I and I love the performances, by the way, by the actors who are playing the various Cleons. It is great. I, I can't get enough of Lee Pace, who um, was very much featured in this week's episode. Yes. We'll, we'll talk about that. I think also Goyer has taken the opportunity to talk about some contemporary themes. I, I think climate change is something that he is talking about here. Possibly uh, government overreach or, or, you know, kind of slippery slope into fascism post 9-11, I think is something that, you know, that the, the fall of the star bridge is really something that he's taking the opportunity to, to, to put in some contemporary themes. I, I guess though, that 
again, there are one of our biggest concerns is that Asimov's biggest theme is this tension between the great man theory of history, where people, you know, individual um, individual actions are important, versus psychohistory, where you're just kind of statistically calculating the great themes of, of uh, uh, the great movements of history based on large uh, numbers of people. You know, I've been afraid that that he may have been slipping on that. But I, I, after this week's episode, I'm starting to think he's, he's getting back there. He's, I think he's started to not de-emphasize the individual stories. I think he's, he's, the individuals are still important. They're still evoking emotions in us, but he's taking the, a lot of the different individuals in a lot of different directions. And it is kind of starting to feel like he is getting back to that main theme of the book, which is something that he has told us he's aware of. For us, I think it's really important. And so I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to think that we're going to get there. And, and I, I'm happy about that. I'm not sure if there was a question in all that or just a statement. It was a good statement. That, that was, you know, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think one of the interesting themes that feels like it's more, feels like it's underdeveloped in the book that's more in the, in the series is the notion of the individual versus the community. And I think the three, the clones of the, the emperor play into that. But there's this idea, like there's this important thing, I forget if it's in the first or second episode, where that woman, there's a woman who's pregnant who has to go on the ship that's going to go to Terminus. But the ship is, un, yeah, the ship is unsafe or something's not right. You know, they're kind of harsh about that. It's like they're not going to make any changes. If you want to go, you got to go. So the individual must be sacrificed for the greater good. It, I like that. And this, I think, was something conscious that the readers did because it ties into the idea of, of psychohistory and that you cannot predict the behavior of one person, but you can predict with, with kind of stunning accuracy to predict the, the future of and behavior of populations. Yeah, exactly. And, and of course, that, I mean, it is a topic of conversation constantly in the show. Um, you know, Hari is applying psychohistory to individuals over and over again. And there's all this pushback against that. And, and actually, that was present in the book. Hari does do calculations on whether or not he's going to be arrested and whether or not he's going to get a death sentence. And he admits that it's very inaccurate when trying to apply it to individuals. It doesn't stop him from trying to do it. And, and so we are still seeing that same thing going on here in the, in the TV show, which is, which is fine. I, I mean, I think that my concern personally was that uh, the last episode, episode seven, seemed to really be losing the plot and really getting weak and you know i was concerned that we had a strong start to the series and then it kind of weakened but i really felt like this last episode was very strong and really kind of got back on the path i was just wondering what all, all of you guys thought about that you know was was there an uptick here yeah i would think a definite uptick there's some there's some things that are kind of low-key that are bugging me about this episode which we'll get to but overall, this was far stronger than um, than episode seven. Do we want to do we want to talk about this episode now, or do we do you have some more questions sure. for Rich? I mean, I I, we, I could talk to Rich about this stuff for you know for for the rest of the, our podcast. But but uh, you know maybe we should talk a little bit about the episode, and we can also you know continue to sure. get Rich get your insight into the. So what I'm what I'll do is I'll I'll go through um, the story a little bit, and then we can we can talk about the. Uh, things that we liked, things that we didn't like. Um, I mean, it, it really seemed to strike a balance. Um, you know, there was a lot of action, but there were not nearly as many scene changes as there were a couple of episodes ago where we had, you know, 33 different scene changes. Here there were about 
15 or 16. So it was, it was, it was much tighter. We get a scene on Anacreon, uh, the backstory of Farah, where we see her brother killed in the attack by the empire. And I thought it was actually kind of strange that we flash back into the future on the Invictus, where she's kind of just chatting with Salver about, this is my story. I, it seemed a little strange that she would be doing that, but okay. And then she, uh, she makes a very harsh threat to Salver uh, that if Salver doesn't help her, then she's going to kill everybody on Terminus, starting with Salver's mother. Uh, we switch over to Gail and Harry, and they're talking about Gail's ability, apparently, to see the future, how she studied math in order to try to avoid the future she was seeing. And you know, they talk about how her prescience can, can affect psychohistory. And we get the first mention of the second foundation and possibly the first thing that's really going to irritate the purists, which is that Harry announces that the second foundation is at star's end on Helicon, mm-hmm. which I, I don't know. It's not that big a deal, but I just <laughs> went, when, when they did that. Uh, Rich, for those of you who haven't read the books, all, all three of the initial books, the second foundation uh, is I not figured. on Helicon. So, uh, <laughs> Um, then we, we do get a, a sight of Hugo, who, as we suspected, was not nearly as dead as episode yeah, seven. Yeah, there, there was no way that guy gets that death. There was no way. <laughs> no, no way. No way at all. It was clearly not. Uh, and he calls up his, his friends on Thespis and tells them, hey, uh, Nacreon activity sighted in Sector 59 or whatever, and hopefully they're going to come. And, and, in, and in fact, as we see later on, they do. Then, then we get into what I think is really the heart of this episode, which is Brother Day walking the spiral. And we see him getting the pep talk from Demerzel before he goes. It's going to be 170 kilometers, no food or water. They have to, he has to not bring his personal shield, his aura, as they call it. They're going to take out his nanobots so he can really get hurt. Uh, Demerzel tells him if he falls to one knee, it's okay. He can even get help, but he has to get back up. If he gets down to two knees, basically he's dead. And anybody who goes out of two knees is dead. So, you know, that's <laughs> going to show up later on. Half of the people reach the center and that if you do reach the center and the mother, uh, and the mother decides you're worthy, then you'll get a vision. And again, we do get the image of him being so sure of himself. And he's never been in circumstances like this before where he had to do this kind of physical exertion and put himself at risk, but he is absolutely 100% arrogantly sure that he can do it. He takes Demerzel's uh, salt crystal from her bracelet and we, we see her visibly flinch when he breaks her bracelet, by the way. So uh, we see him on his trip. He makes a friend going through the desert. I, I really thought of that song, uh, America, <laughs> Horse With No Name. You know, I just kept thinking it's the last temptation of Lee Pace. <laughs> Yeah, no, there's that. There's that too. He was definitely doing the Jesus thing there for a while. He absolutely was. He absolutely was. I, I don't want to preempt the moment of levity, but the old guy he makes friends with actually tells him to pace himself during the trip. Oh. That was kind of strange. You know, they have that that conversation. I think there was the first actual joke told in the whole series where the friend he makes says to him that because there was so much pollution on Nishaya, the planet he comes from, that his mother said that she'd had three kids with his father before she got a good look at his face. And uh, I, I, I do not believe there has <laughs> been an actual joke told in the series before. I, I'm, I'm, willing to, uh, I'm willing to be corrected on that, but that, that seemed like... That. Anyway, then we switch back to Harry and Gail, again, talking about the second foundation, and she announces that she wants out. And she's screaming at him to open the goddamn door. 
and let her out. He won't. But I mean, it's a very interesting buildup. Like, is Gal is Gail that important a character or not? Harry seems to think that she is. And Gail kind of says, you don't need me. Let me go. I want out of this. I'm, I'm tired of being manipulated and used. We switch back to Brother Day on one knee. We switch back to the Invictus. And he, by the way, he gets up with help. We switch back to the, the Invictus. And Salvor starts working on the number two Anacreonian, Rowan, who I always suspected was a little bit of a sympathetic character. Uh, she does her mind reading trick on him. And then there's another weird scene with like a defense system. There's this bridge defense system that starts shooting at them. And, and Salver has to go out and, uh, and be bait for the system. And Farah comes out and does a, a great shot with her bow and arrow. And, uh, and they manage to get on the bridge. Salver manages to arrange it so that only she and Lewis are on the bridge. She sees that the captain had committed suicide and written the word EXO on that, gold, on that glowing ball. I'm not sure what that was really supposed to be about. We see this symbiotic navigator who was actually plugged into the ship because they didn't have spacers. And Salver decides that she's going to jack into the system and guide the ship. Uh, we go back to Terminus. We find out that the uh, that field around the vault is expanding. And uh, Salver's mother tells the senior officer that we've got to evacuate. Again, we get back to uh, Brother Day and his friend. And uh-oh, his friend goes down on two knees and, and is going to die. And Brother Day appears to be having an existential crisis. And he really seems to care about this friend he's made. He takes care of his body, brings him to the side of the path. You see the scene with Brother Day and a skull, which I, I, I'm sure somebody's got some commentary about that. And uh, he breaks the skull, heads into the cave. And then we see him describing this vision he's had. He's describing the vision to the Zephyrs where he says he saw this flower, which turns out to be super important to the luminous religion, the birthroot flower. The Zephyrs love it, they eat it up. And he seems to have beaten Zephyr Halima with his great vision. Finally, Gail manages by breaking the heat transfer system to force Harry to let her out. She takes Rach's knife and she's gonna make the 130 year journey into season two, I believe, and, and has dropped out of season one and has really, I guess, shown that this individual character is not that important. Brother Day goes back to the ship and then murder time where Demerzel goes to visit Zephyr Halima, tells her that she walked the spiral 11,000 years ago. And then we find out that she was there to murder Halima. It's, I, I guess it was noticeable that, that the poison that murders Halima was transmitted by touch if you watch the scene carefully, Demerzel never actually reaches out to touch Zephyr Halima. She waits for Zephyr Halima to touch her. Uh, but of course, if we read the first rule of robotics, it does say that no robot may harm a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. So that doesn't really get Demerzel off the hook. And I'm sure that's going to be, an, uh, for me, that's a, it's a very interesting decision to have Demerzel ordered to murder Zephyr Halima and carries out the order. And then um, we get back to the Invictus. There's another hand-to-hand -hand fight. The Thespian Lancers appear and um, the ship is going to jump and uh, nobody is plugged into any sedation or any bed. So we don't know what's going to happen to everybody. Supposedly human minds can't take the space folding, but we have seen that Gale managed to be awake during it. 
and we think there's some link between Salver and Gale, so maybe she'll survive it. Uh, I suspect very, very strongly that Salver does survive. Uh, I don't know about Farah though. I think maybe we, we may have seen the last of Farah due to this jump. Um, and then there's the confrontation between uh, Demerzel and Brother Day. Uh, Demerzel shows that she strongly suspects that Brothers, Brother Day was lying about having seen a vision. And that is confirmed for us that he in fact saw nothing. And we hear Demerzel's voiceover about how sad it would be if you went and uh, and saw nothing. And and maybe, I don't know, is that supposed to mean that Brother Day really is a soulless monster and, and Demerzel the robot who had a vision really has a soul? I don't know. I think it's a, it's a topic of conversation within the show. And that's pretty much where we end with Brother Day. Uh, we see Brother Day in the cave, flashing back to the cave, not having a vision. Wow, that was long. I apologize for no, well done. the well done. of that description, but a lot happened. I mean, there was a lot happening. Um, I think there's a lot that's important to the story. Uh, there was a lot of talk on Twitter about Demerzel and the murder of Zephyr Halima. There was a lot of people talking about this concept of the zeroth law. So for those who don't know this, the three laws of robotics, which we've talked about, the first one is that robots can't harm humans. The second one is that they have to follow orders unless it conflicts with the first law. And the third law is that they have to preserve themselves unless it conflicts with the second or the first laws. And then over time, the robots came up with what they called the zeroth law, which is that robots may not harm humanity as a whole or through inaction allow humanity to come to harm. So the pushback on Twitter against the objection to Zemrazel murdering Zephyr Halima is that, well, that's the zeroth law. She's, she's protecting humanity by killing Zephyr Halima. And you know, my response to that is to say, well, if we're going to allow Demerzel to murder people directly, to possibly participate in the destruction of the Star Bridge, which killed 150 million people, and the destruction of a couple of planets, which killed pres presumably hundreds of millions to billions of people, if you can justify that under the zeroth law, you can justify anything. You know, and I, I'm not there for that. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what Asimov intended. And I, I really believe that, that Demerzel would not have actually even been able to murder Zephyr Halima for the reasons that Brother Day gave, for the political reasons of just, well, I won and I don't like Zephyr Halima. She's, she's got to be taught a lesson, so I'm going to murder her. I, I just, that really kind of rubbed me the wrong way. So I'll, I'll throw that out there to, to you guys, of whether... This yeah, may not be the, the right place to start, but it's it was the thing that really it, stuck in it, my mind. It's a place to start, certainly. Yeah, the um, I mean, if you 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 look at Asimov's stuff, the way that he had the three laws configured, there's no way this could have happened. If she was if she was a party to this, you know, her positronic brain would have shut down. If we're looking at the zeroth law, the zeroth law isn't something that's hard coded into these positronic brains. It's something that has kind of been inferred later on. I don't think that that has quite, I don't think that that would have quite the impact or quite the uh, the immediacy to a robot's functioning as, as the, particularly the first law. I don't, I don't know how you, I, I, I saw some people trying to excuse it. I don't know how the first law survives that scene. I absolutely agree with you. And I mean, look, in the books, in the prequels where Demerzel is the uh, chief of staff of the emperors, Clearly, Demerzel has got to do things that are going to result in deaths of people. You know, who knows what Demerzel would have had to do in order to be chief of staff to the emperor. 
but it just feels like they've just thrown out these limitations here and just said, well, you know, we're going to set up a situation where Brother Day orders her to do something she doesn't want to do. And she has no choice. She has to do it. But it's definitely affecting their relationship. So for dramatic purposes, OK, it's it's there. Uh, but I think I, I think it is something that the purists are struggling with, that I'm struggling with. And, and was it necessary to do that in the context of this story? I, I don't know. Well, I, I think actually the, the the bigger thing that struck me about all that was um, just the seismic change that it had and a lot of the that it gave to a lot of the assumptions that I, th I think we had about the series, which uh, you know was you know Demerzel poten potentially being the hidden hand of the foundation and engineering a lot of this stuff. You know now it seems like you know watching that scene, I think that. Probably the I could not have knelt if it had been a betrayal is probably much more accurate than we gave it credit last week. Can I ask a dumb question? Always. Yeah. So I understand the three laws of robotics, um, and I've only read the foundation, but what, why does it have to be the three laws of robotics are not in the foundation universe are they okay well so they were not and there were no robots in the foundation universe so what so my my question is why do those why do laws and other books that apply to robots have to apply to them because asimov decided late in life that he was going to unify the various different universes that he had created and there was a big question about the foundation universe which was no robots and clearly Asimov was famous for writing, starting with iRobot, which was a collection of stories and moving on to the Robots of Dawn and, and Caves of Steel and those other stories. There were a lot of robots. So if you're gonna unify those, those two different visions of the future, you kind of have to explain why there are no robots. And the explanation that he settled on was that there were almost no robots, that the robots had decided through this inference of the zeroth law, that first they should take care of humanity because humanity needed taking care of. And then later on in an even more kind of meta moment, they decided that they were causing humanity to stagnate by overprotecting them. And so they took themselves away. So there, that's why there were no robots in the foundation series, except there was one robot who we had been introduced to in his early detective robot stories named R. Daniil Olivaw. And what we find out, spoiler alert for all those of you who have not through the many times that we've spoiled this over the last few podcast episodes, Demerzel is our Daniil Olivaw. So he is a, he, or now she, is a direct link between Asimov's robot stories in which the three laws of robotics aren't just featured, but are kind of the yeah. key to every story, like how these mysteries are solved. They're basically solved by applying the three laws of robotics to the puzzle to figure out the, the conclusion of the story. So Daniil slash Demerzel is clearly bound by these laws of robotics. And so if you're going to put that character in, which, you know, there she is, and she says she's at least 11,000 years old, maybe older, almost definitely older, even older than that. Now we have this issue that, that for Asimov, the three laws of robotics were absolutely seminal. I mean, I remember him being asked by a reporter about the possibility of creating death-dealing robots for war, and he just hung up the phone. 
You know, he was not going to have that conversation. Uh, you know, any robot that wasn't bound by the three laws was not a robot Isaac Asimov wanted to contemplate. So to make decisions that look like David Gore is just saying, oh, well, fuck the three laws, pardon my French, is a tough decision for those of us who are big Asimov fans to get our minds around. So it wasn't a dumb question. It's a really important question. <laughs> Very much so. Well, he's and he's made a choice. They've made a choice. They decide. I mean, I'm speculating, but they clearly one of the themes. Obviously, one of the themes is you even said it yourself, John. That and this foundation is not the first place to do this. Obviously, that the the robot has more humanity than the human she serves. So they obviously felt that was more emotional. That was cooler than sticking to these three laws. They would rather have that moment, which is a great moment. If you don't know about those three laws, it's a fantastic moment. That I think you're right, that episode eight is the best of all of them. And particularly that the walking through the maze, I think the, man, the moment when Lee Pace turns around and looks at, what's her name, Zephyr, the, the woman he's just bested? Alima. Alima. When he gives her that look, after friggin' going down the one knee in the desert and his skin is burned and his feet are, feet are frayed and he gives her the look of, I just stuck the shiv in you and turned it. That to me was the moment of the series. I thought that was fantastic. And this is, this is one of those moments that you, you know, have to make choices. If you stick to the three laws, you don't get that. You don't get the humanity of this robot. So you have to, you have to choose which one you want. You can't really have both. Yeah. I, I, I do agree with you. And, and I think that the, the tension within Demerzel now that has been building and building and building where she is serving these emperors and she really uh, is in conflict with herself, um, I think is an important story point. Also, the, the other thing that we've suspected, knowing the character from the book, by the way, and knowing that she's been with the emperors all this time is there's a lot of speculation that Demerzel is the puppet master here who has been manipulating the Cleons for hundreds of years, who uh, maybe manipulated the creation of the foundation, that she has a plan that she's trying to carry out for humanity uh, that may involve Selden and the foundation, uh, but it certainly involves what's going on with the emperors. I mean, I know you've, you've seen the show, you've seen how Brother Dawn um, is showing differences with the other Cleons we're all pretty sure that Demerzel is behind that, that she did some kind of genetic manipulation and, and is trying to change the Cleons. We're not entirely sure why. It was quite a curveball to see her as a luminist. And it's, you know, I have to say, you're, you know, you're right. For people who've, who've, who've grown up with the three laws to, to see her not exactly, it seems, bound by the three laws, it's curveball. I mean, I think I think we can probably deal with it, but it's it's just it sticks out. One one echo that I think is probably unintentional, um, but that really plays that I like on in this episode is. Um, do you remember that in uh, the story "Little Lost Robot"? We have Susan Calvin say that robots basically resent uh, human mastery over them. I I was really getting Demersel's resentment uh, in that wonderful closing scene here. And, you know, so far, their, their relationship is a really interesting and complex relationship that over the season, 
we just get every episode we get another facet of how this works and this um really added something new in that closing scene this kind of resentment and um i i don't know i just really appreciated it even though yeah maybe the three laws are out the window um i i am i am enjoying the the dynamics of this relationship and where this is going and it seems like it's uh going to just set up for even something even more fruitful going forward and i agree with that um it is it is a great relationship and and again i think one of the strengths of the show is the individual performances of people like laura byrne and she's great and lee pace yeah and and uh, you know terrence mann i think has done a great job and in a sort of a secondary yeah. role as brother, uh, brother Dusk and brother Darkness when he was when he was going to his death, Jared Harris. Uh, you know, I wish we would have seen more of Jared Harris, but um, I'm willing to accept more of Lee Pace. Um, but I think that um, you know the people on on Terminus, uh, uh, Cooper Sate and and Leah Harvey. I mean, they're all we're really getting very good individual performances, and and I think it's it's uh, it's important. <laughs> Let me ask you guys what you think. There's a kind of duality to Lee Pace's story here in Walking the Circle. And we have his his wonderful, uh, very human interaction with this uh, old man on the route um, in which he's sort of stripped of his imperial grandeur and is just has has a friend maybe for the first time in his life and and is very is very human and really poignant in some ways and then yet at the end of it when it's all over we we go back into kind of hard power politics uh and and he he makes up the story about seeing the vision and he uses it to manipulate the uh the luminist uh uh, seers or interpreters of the story, and then eventually, of course, has Halima killed. Uh, how I don't know what just what what do you make of that, or how do you balance that? That we're given this sort of very vulnerable vision of him, combined with the the kind of old arrogant <laughs> uh, brother day that we we know and love. Well, okay, first time through because I've, I've watched all these twice because we're doing, you know, of course we're doing the podcast thing, but first time through. Yeah, I saw that relation with thirteen and and the the old pilgrim, and thought maybe there's some great character development coming. Maybe he'll learn to show some compassion. And I kind of thought that you know when the old man died, he he actually was showing compassion. It it didn't feel that way to me the second time, the, the, the second time through, because he had you know I, I was putting some pieces together. He, he was pumping that old gentleman for information, right? The whole the salt was swirling thing was, you know, he, he got that directly from him. Yeah. Right. And I think, yeah, it, a lot of that could have been self-interest, right. I mean, he was sad, but he could have just been sad because he didn't, didn't want to continue walking by himself. Right. I mean, it's gotta be easier if you've got companionship, you know, there's nothing really that happens later on that, that, that contradicts that. I mean, there, there's like maybe some things that could be kindness when, when the, the, the old man dies, but I don't know. I mean, it all sort of sort of seemed hollow second time. Well, I mean, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit because I think we contain multitudes. And I think that his his kindness to the old man was sincere. I think you're absolutely right that he pumped him for information and absolutely used the swirling salt thing uh, in his vision. No question about it. But there is that moment first of first when the when the old man helps him, Uh, you know, generally genuine out of genuine kindness, the old man helps him when he's on one knee. 
And remember, this is a person in Brother Day who's not used to even being physically touched by anyone. And the old man holds out his hand and, and helps him up. And I think he really did honestly want to return that favor. And as the old man is talking about how he's, you know, he's looking forward to his resurrection and Brother Day says to him, but what if this is it? What if this is the end? You know, and I think he genuinely was curious. I think he genuinely was experiencing some kind of expansion mentally. But then at the end, having succeeded, and I could see people doing this. He had a plan all along. And having succeeded, yes, his mind was expanded by the old man. It's an experience he'll always have, you know, that will that will influence him. But he had his plan and now he had the opportunity to carry it out. I could see people doing that, you know, going, all right, I had a I had a little bit of a, a, an emotional experience, but now let's get back to the plan. And then afterwards, having had a bath, you know, and had a few minutes to think about it. I could definitely see somebody going right back into the old ways and saying, hey, I, I did this and, and just going and having it feed right into their arrogance. Yeah, you're right. People do that all the time. Yeah. So I found that actually quite believable. All of it. I Well, I agree with you, John. I thought that was a great, I think to me it was, I mean, I think about it always kind of with my screenwriter head. And I think to me, they wanted to show they wanted to demonstrate how big a bastard this guy is. Lee Pace is an actor. He's one of those rare actors that even when he's mean, you kind of like him. There's something likable about him. So you're looking for him. I think you're kind of always looking for him to be redeemed. Like we want to see that there's a good side to him. And so they give him this situation. The, the, you know, the writers say, well, let's give him a situation that would change anybody, right? Who could go through this and be shown this, you know, this old man who's on his last legs, literally, shows him this incredible kindness. He saves his life. That would change anybody, but and you want him to be changed, but he doesn't. And that to me was the point of it. Like even that, he's beyond even that. And that's the guy that can't have a vision in the salt cave. Yep, no, that's that's right. And you're absolutely right. We want to root for Lee Pace. We want, we want, we want Brother Day to grow. And you're absolutely right. They gave us that sort of, they gave us all that rope yeah. and we said, there, there it is. He's having that experience. He's going to grow and change. And yeah, now he, he's, he's even he's worse in some ways. And he's not, you know, the th I think they're also trying to show us that he's, he's not a sociopath. He's not someone who doesn't understand emotion. He does. He gets it and he feels it. But he just has a bigger plan that he's carrying out. And he's going to be able to kind of shed that emotion because he's got something he wants to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and, you know, this is why I think this episode was so good as compared to the previous one, which I had a lot of complaints about here. They really made you think, I, th I think there was some real complex emotion of, uh, you know, the, the Demerzel is experiencing a lot of complex emotion. She does not want to be killing Zephyr Halima, but she's doing it anyway, you know, and, and there's all of that stuff with brother day. And there, you know, the, I, I think also they, I mean, I think they broke out of a bunch of things here. They, they broke Gail out of the story. I think that was a big surprise that, well, she's she's gone off and she's going to be in suspended animation for the next 138 years. I, I admit I was surprised by that. What about you guys? Did you what did you think of the Gale aspect of the story? Yeah, I I, I was very disturbed of her going back into deep freeze just after she thawed out. I mean, she's gonna wake up with freezer burn <laughs> next time. <laughs> but seriously, it it was it was definitely an unexpected move because I, I was fully anticipating that 
maybe not now, but by let's say episode 10 or so, they're going to get to Helicon. Gail is going to help found the second foundation and whatever, uh, you know, she'll, she'll be integral to that whole process. Um, and now this was a big curveball. And now what, what happens now? We don't see her again until Bell Rios comes or, or Maybe. what? Yeah. I mean, I'm interested. I'm a little, I, I kind of wanted Gail to go to <laughs> Alicon. I wanted to see, see that, but, um, but it, this way is certainly roused my curiosity. It's given, it's given us another thing to wonder about. And I, I think, as you mentioned before, John, it does seem to de-emphasize her importance as an individual and cut against some of those things that we had been kind of wondering about with skepticism of is, is psychohistory really ready to stand on its own without any individual heroes? And it seems like by sending her off, yeah, we are moving back in that direction. Yeah, and also by neutralizing Zephyr Halima, who seemed like she was going to be such an important character. Well, now psychohistory, you know, the plan's going to continue with the religion's going to do what it's going to do with or without Zephyr Halima. She's gone. She's out. She, you know, she looked like she won. It looked like she was going to be the new Proxima, and now she's dead. And so I think that's another character where they went, yeah, uh, she was going to be big and important, but now, you know what, the story's going to be able to continue without her. Yeah, it'll be interesting if they cycle back to that, because I mean, that was one of Harry's Harry's predictions about the religion, you know, the religion coming out against the um, the genetic dynasty. And now they won't because she didn't get elected. So do they cycle back to that? Do they um, just let it go? Well, it could be that that continues to be a theme within the religion of trillions of people, but even without the individual. I mean, it could be that psychohistory said there is going to be resistance to the genetic dynasty. And it's going to come from the religion with or without any individual impetus. You know, maybe that's an idea that's going to take root in some of those trillions of followers. I don't know. Yeah, maybe there's a schism coming. But I just got the impression that, you know, the religion is one of the things that's leading us towards this crisis. Mm -hmm. And the behavior of the planets out in the outer reaches or the periphery, as we like to call it, is another theme. And then there's the, the genetic dynasty. And all of these things maybe are subject to analysis by psychohistory, with or without the individual people who seem to be driving those stories. And I, and I think they really are starting to lead us there. And uh, I approve. <laughs> I approve of that message. I mean, I, I know I've, I've run through an awful lot of things. Is there anything else that, that you know, you guys, that stood out for you guys in this episode that you want to... Well, um... A thing I'm kind of curious about your guys your, your guys take on this because you know the first couple times we saw 13 dealing with the with the luminous he was trying to play politics and he was like utterly it seemed utterly inept at it he's offering desalinization plants yeah and in these little things expecting that to move the you know to make a political headway and I mean he's he's not even playing checkers at that point it's like he's playing go fish but then, you know, this walking the spiral thing and coming up with exactly the right lie that was going to have exactly the right, um, you know, exactly going to land exactly the right way with the, um, that tribunal there, that is like so far above anything that he was doing before. It just, it seems completely incongruous to me. So I, I, I get your point. Um, I guess I had a mixed reaction to this. I, I thought, on the one hand, the reaction of the interpreters seemed a little bit too 
convenient for the story. That is, this three-petaled flower is absolutely everywhere in uh, in this planet. That so, you know, it's on the walls. It's right behind the people that are doing the interpreting. Uh, it's on the courtyard where the spaceship uh, arrives. I mean, it, this is like the symbol of the religion. So, you know, it, it's almost like if this were Christianity going and saying, I saw a vision of a cross, <laughs> uh, you know, that it wouldn't take much theological knowledge to, to, to have to say that. But, you know, it, it, it is a good shift. Like that is, he's apparently the, one of the side effects of him going through this pilgrimage is that he has now understood that religious people care about theology <laughs> and that he's he's offering a theological solution to a theological problem rather than an economic or a political solution to a theological problem so in the end although i you know it's a little mixed on on how this played out uh, but i i was satisfied with it and it seemed to work for me yeah and keep in mind that He's not stupid. The Cleons are extremely intelligent. Cleon mm-hmm. the first was apparently quite a politician. And that while Brother Day made some mistakes in previous episodes, remember that he's trained as a politician. There's that scene, I think it's in episode one, where he's yep. taking the gifts that the Anacreonians and the Thespans, the Thespans brought them and interpreting the message, the hidden messages in the gifts for the very young at the time, Brother Dawn, who I guess is actually this, this, this guy is, the, is that Brother yeah. Dawn. Yeah. And so he's been trained to look for those kinds of messages. And yes, he made some very bad moves and, and, and allowed himself to be manipulated by Zephyr Halima, but he's no fool. And, and he, you know, he was able to, he has that natural ability and he's been trained to do it. And, and keep in mind, he, he was willing to take an enormous risk, personal risk here. I mean, the odds of him finishing that thing were pretty low, considering everything. And and he managed to do it. So he really, he took a big gamble and it yeah. paid off. But, you know, don't underestimate his intelligence, even though no. he made some mistakes. See how I'm, I'm fully bought into the story now. It got me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It seemed like too much of a leap. But, but I mean, maybe, maybe that's, that's the key thing. He realizes that it has to be a theological yeah, honestly, I could buy that. Rich, what stood out for you here in this? In this uh, well, I mentioned some of the things before. I thought the moment, the Lee Pace stuff was really the highlight of the episode and in some ways the highlight of the series. I just think the way he, what he does to go through what he does and to have, because he's, I just love that performance moment more than almost any other because he's exhausted. He's just gone through this thing that would have killed that, could have killed him but he still has the political presence of mind to give her that look like i just fucked you and we both and we both know it it's such a great it's it's such a great moment the only thing one thing that stood out to me and that i i didn't like so much is gail's decision to destroy the heat processing or the heat uh, filtering system Whatever it is, it just seemed like that was a that's a suicidal move, and it I didn't understand why she didn't have any other options. I didn't understand why. I I get that she felt trapped. I get she felt she's being manipulated. But you know, we all feel trapped and manipulated sometimes. That doesn't mean we're destroying spaceships so we you know are burned to death. So I didn't get. I didn't feel the desperation of that moment that required that desperate a solution. 
Like she could have gone to the planet and I don't know, if it's Star Wars, she would have gotten a transport, you know, and gone a few parsecs to the next uh, world. I didn't, I didn't quite buy, I mean, it worked. She got what she wanted. She made her point to Harry Selden, but I didn't quite get, it felt too desperate for the moment to me. I was going to say that that's consistent with there was a previous episode where I didn't like the way that they were portraying Gail. And this is kind of, um, uh, you know, consistent with it, you know, where, you know, I mean, she's supposed to be amazingly intelligent and she, you know, slips into emotionality and desperation way, way too quickly. I mean, this is the second time she's run very, very fast toward a, a suicide attempt. And I, I didn't buy the first one either. I guess from, from a dramatic standpoint, having a, a living Gale kind of lying around but not participating is uh, unsatisfying. Whereas now um, she's really out of the picture. So whatever's going to happen is going to happen without her. And we can bring her back 138 years in the future. So that's pretty convenient. So uh, I'm not saying they, that's... Go ahead, Joseph. They, or pretty much any time they decide to intercept that little pod. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a good decision, but I'm saying from a dramatic <laughs> yeah. standpoint, I understand yeah. it. So, Joseph, are, you, are, we, are we good? Um, well, okay. So, um, yeah, I, I do sort of want to talk about Gale. Right? We, did, we didn't do, do the loop back to the old stuff. Uh, but a, a thing that I was pondering over the week, because um, last week, John, you had said something to the effect that, you know, we've gotten to the situation with the Anacreonians where, um, you know, you couldn't see a resolution that didn't follow someone swinging from a chandelier and kicking someone in the head or words to that effect. Yeah. And so I started, uh, you know, started thinking about, because we're also pondering what's the, what's, what's the character development track for Gale. And, you know, we're thinking we want, want to see her end up like, uh, not Gale, excuse me, Salvor. Salvor. Uh, yeah, like Salvor in the book. And so, you know, it's this learning process. And so, you know, what some of the, making air quotes for those of you who don't see, aren't seeing me, you know, the, the um, character development we've seen is, you know, Salvor tries something that's basically violent and Abbas, Abbas dies. And then in the next episode, she says we have no option but to try something violent and then you know one of the one of the foundationers on the invictus dies and then you know she tries something violent this time and um lewis dies right um or at least is gravely gravely injured and i'm i was thinking that the only you know the only satisfying end to this whole thread is something that isn't violent and it is political i don't see us getting there well, we do see Salver now willing to plug herself into the system and, you know, really sacrifice herself in order to uh, to get the ship away. I suspect that Salvor is going to survive the jump and somehow she's going to get herself back to the story. I mean, presumably the Invictus is going to jump somewhere random, mm. but I would be surprised if the rest of Salvor's life is going to be in some random place in space that somehow she's going to get back into the story, back to Terminus or Trantor or someplace and get herself back into the story. And maybe, you know, maybe she will have that character development. Maybe yeah. her willingness to sacrifice herself, not violently, but just to, right. to do something, maybe, you know, maybe that is going to matter. Yeah, actually the, 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 the next issue blurb or whatever you, whatever you call it is more or less spoiled that aspect of next, next week's show. I won't say yeah. what it is, but it's there for people to look at. Right. But again, you know, we do have to come back to the fact that while, you know, Salver says what we, we have to try, the plan tells us that we have to try. Right. And she's right. People don't, you know, you, people shouldn't just get 
complacent and do nothing. Mm-hmm. Everyone has to try and everyone's individual actions do matter to them, to the people around them. But the overall sweep of history looks like now to me, looks like it's going to happen uh, whether, whether Salvor gets back to Terminus or not. And, and it doesn't mean that what she's doing doesn't matter. I mean, that's part of the tension here is mm-hmm. that it, it doesn't, the fact that there's a psychohistorical analysis doesn't mean that what you do individually doesn't matter. It just means that history is going to happen, whatever you do. And I think there's an important distinction to be made there. And I think Salvor and others are trying to, are getting towards that. That's a fairly high, that's a fairly fine hair to split. Well, the differences between it. those things. Yeah. I'm splitting it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've, we've, taking as much time as we can take dan uh, have you got a moment of levity that i haven't already ruined from uh, all of my talking i i do have one um so you'll remember that when salvor and lewis get into the control room they see this weird glowing globe on which the captain uh 700 years ago in her blood in her own blood wrote EXO, E-X-O. And so Lewis says, does this mean executive officer? And Salver Harden means, well, it just means coming from outside maybe. But in fact, neither of these are correct because as I know you guys know, and as I'm sure our whole audience knows, EXO is also the name of one of the world's most popular Korean boy bands. So I'm predicting that we're going to get a flashback 700 years ago in the empire when K-pop just dominated the cultural life of the uh, imperial military. And um, so that's, that's the solution in advance. I'm calling it now. Okay. Well, <laughs> we're going to hold you to that and we're going to come back to you and we're going to, we're going to let you know when that turns out to be, you know, you know, Oh, one thing I do want to mention, by the way, about the way this episode um, seems to have taken us in my, in my view, at least put us back on track. Let's give some credit to Roxanne Dawson who directed this episode for this, this is the first episode of Foundation that she's directed. I, I think it is possible that one of the things that has made this show so patchy is that the writing, the, the main writer keeps changing, the director keeps changing. And I think we had a strong performance here out of those teams that maybe we didn't have in the previous episodes. Yes. Let me ask you that, Rich, about, about I mean, I, I don't know if you have individual experience of this, but certainly Zoe was, I, I know the origin of it was various different short stories that kind of got stuck together and produced into a movie. And here we have obviously a TV series where it it is uh, based on a, the source material was short stories that were put together. And here we do have the, the writing and directing teams changing every week. Do you think that that could be detrimental to the, to the overall quality of the series? It can be, but plenty of shows are written that way. There's plenty of teams um, and there is, there's always going to be some showrunner or some creative overseer who's making sure it's unified. I think it, it, the patchiness has more to do with just how ambitious it is and the scope of what you're trying to do. They're trying to set up a lot of threads. You have to remember something that Apple is putting this much money into. They're anticipating season two and three. So we're seeing stuff that will not pay off this season. And it's going to pay off later. So it's just, it's hard. It's hard to do. And you're seeing some some spots where they didn't succeed. Right. Well, I hope that if I hope that we, we've got a good a good trend started here with this episode, because um, as we left our episode seven last week, we were hoping that uh, they would do a better job this week. I think they have. Uh, at Ooh. least I, I feel that they have. All right. Well, listen, Rich, thanks very much for for your time and, and insight. 
I very much appreciate it. And uh, guys, anything else that you wanna you wanna add as we go, or Rich, anything, any last words for us as we? Uh, just thanks. Pleasure to pleasure to be a part of it, and uh, to sit down and, and talk science fiction with you guys. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rich. Anytime. Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform. You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com, where there's always additional content. Our music, used by a Creative Commons license, is It Is Coming by Alex Mason. Also, follow us on Twitter at starsendpodcast. Goodbye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end.